0: Everyone, you are listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane 88.1 and 92.3 FM, and this is Art Hour. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Balsam,
1: and I'm your other remote host, Eric Woodard.
0: Eric, our guest today is Adam Schluter. Is that right,
1: Adam?
2: You're first out of 100 journalists. Say that right, (laughs) thank God. And I don't mind, it doesn't bother me. It's for my grandpa. Hey, Mike,
1: before you go on, I just want to point out he called you a journalist. Uh, yeah that's good you're also the first to ever call him a journalist so we're having all kinds of firsts today people hate being called artists they i don't know what's called people anymore (laughs) no i like it
0: yeah so i gotta i gotta start off by saying this um um i didn't typically i don't do a lot of research on our guests but i thought you know i'm just gonna see what i find out about adam and eric could be interested in this so um Adam was at, on a TEDx, um, did a TEDx episode here in Spokane. And one of the first things he said that connected uh, to me right away was something we talk about was this notion of wanting or needing to be challenged to feel alive. That feeling of which you get in the pit of your stomach knowing you're venturing out on a little bit of a limb here. But you know you have to create, you crave that because you know you're going to grow uh, from that feeling. So that's how we started off his TEDx talk, and I thought that was really interesting. And also, you explained a little bit about your story. So I thought maybe we'd start off, Adam, just talk about how you ended up in Coeur And hmm. I thought that was pretty interesting.
2: <clears throat> yeah, and I just wanted to say on that the note, I, you know – As someone who was fortunate enough to travel when I was younger, a lot of my travel that I did with my family was very strange. It was very off the grid, off the map. We'd go to third world countries, nothing dangerous, but we didn't really know what we were doing and we would just have to kind of figure it out. And so I kind of fell in love with this idea of not knowing um, where I was going, but having the ability to be able to figure it out if I put myself out there. And with my introverted side uh, of my personality, I fell in love with understanding that I needed to be social to some extent in my life, especially as a photographer, um, and fall in love with that ability to leave my comfort zone through just social activity. Um, And so with the TEDx, that that was such an honor. And, you know, there was 700 people. And I have grown to fall in love with being out of my comfort zone as long as possible so much that I was like, well what's the most difficult, what, how do I make this as difficult as possible so that I'm truly present and you know, um, in what I wanna say and leave without regrets? And so TEDx gives you a speaking coach for four months to prepare for a 12-minute speech. It's unbelievable. And, and so I, his name was Mike Burns. I met with him and he was an amazing guy. And on the first time we met, I was sitting there and I was hearing all of his ideas and I was just thinking about how this whole project is about walking up to people, not knowing the right thing to say, but communicating either way. And so I said, Mike, I think that I have to just, I, I think I'm just going to wing this and do it spontaneously. And he just <laughs> said, he just said, please don't. He immediately shook his hand. <laughs> and he said, Adam, there's 700 people. If you give a bad rehearsal in front of the coordinators, I lose my job. And he said, you have to, and if you give a bad rehearsal, you don't go on stage the next day. So all of your family that flew up here, all your friends that came out, they come up for no reason so let's think about this and I said okay and we did one more meeting and I I just couldn't get out of my head and I said Mike you got to just trust me I think I'll be able to figure this out and I'm gonna do it so that whole TED talk was completely unrehearsed um completely not structured at all TED had asked me to give some pictures to give an idea and that was kind of the only framework and so even the day before the rehearsal was unrehearsed also and um I gave a night and day, completely different talk the next day on um, the next morning for the TED talk. So we took out pictures and changed stuff around, and just and that's why I get that little speech about challenge and leaving the comfort zone in the beginning. But because I was scared jealous. Sorry, I don't know if I can cuss, but I was scared out of my mind. My heart was beat, so.
1: Well, I will um, tell you that I am a, a um, coach for TEDx Spokane, yeah. and and your story right there completely raised my blood pressure. As you're telling that, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know what I would have done with that. That that fills me. I mean, you would have put me out of my comfort zone there.
2: It was really an honor, you know. And me and Mike, uh, you know, I saw him sweating at the rehearsal. I watched it. It was just him and the main coordinators, Mike Kuitine, and then um, a couple other guys. And when that rehearsal ended, um, and it was kind of funny because. Um, I obviously had no idea what I was going to say other than the pictures they asked me to give. And so when I walked up at the rehearsal, I said, hey, Mike Putin I said, how much time can you give me? And he said, Adam, you told us four months ago that you wanted 13 minutes. He's like, you don't have a speech prepared And for 13 minutes? I was like, oh, yeah, 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 I got it, I got it, yeah, no worries. And so I realized I had to just stop talking, just start the conversation and so I started the speech and I didn't even look down until 17 and a half minutes cuz the big clock was off the only the little clock was on and I looked down at 17 and a half minutes, just a rehearsal. And I look at Mike, and I was like, Mike, I'm so sorry. And he goes, Adam, <laughs> ra- finish that story, wrap up that story, and then <laughs> we'll <laughs> talk. And so I wrapped it up, I got done. Because you have to be done 18 minutes. Right. And then I wrapped right. it up, and Mike was, he loved the story that I told. So he's like, Adam, we're going to find you 18 minutes tomorrow. You've got to tell that story. Um, but to me, six minutes or so of the speech was the one story. And I wanted to get into different parts of of the project. And so I decided to meet with the AV guys in the morning and I asked them to pull all those pictures out and I gave them all new pictures to put in so that the rehearsal, the coordinators, no one knew what I was going to say. I didn't know what I was going to say. And up to just maybe 15 minutes or so before we're sitting in the green room and I was like, okay, I should figure out at least how to say like, I was trying to think of the story of the guy in the grass uh, which is Rick Reed and, and I was like okay and I couldn't and my mind was mush and I was scared obviously and, and so I was standing in the back about to go on and the uh the one of the ladies helping was holding my lanyard because she thought I was gonna run. I said, I'm not gonna run, I'm just trying to like <laughs> get this in my head and then they're like two minutes, one minute, they're like I was like, Screw it, I'll just figure this out. So went oh, on and so well, Yeah, I didn't assuming, mean to give everyone a heart attack. Yeah, as
1: soon as we're done here, I gotta go watch that. I gotta see how that went. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and there were some negatives to it, I guess, on the side of maybe not being as concise. But I was happy. We got it done within probably like – it was like three seconds of the 18-minute mark. Um, and so – and what was nice, I met with Mike after. We stood in the and had a drink together. And he said, Adam, when I met you on the second meeting, I knew I just had to stand out of your way and let you do this. So it was nice that he trusted me. So, um, so That's cool.
0: So, Adam, you know, you uh, – were like I think traveling up the Baja or something like that, and you were looking. I, I think there was a possibly a relationship breakup or something like that, yeah. and you went to some agency. You went through this process to narrow down where it was where you were going to settle, <laughs> and that and it happened to be Cortland. Can you t- talk about us, yeah. that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I grew up in, in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, all my family's in St. Louis, Missouri. Very, very close family, but as a photographer, it's an ugly city and not somewhere I wanted to live, and so I had these dreams of graduating college, moving out to L.A., living on a beach, carefree life, convertible, all these things, and I graduated college, went out to L.A. and quickly saw that that is not what L.A. is. It's 100-hour work weeks and brutally difficult and no relationships and you know, just an empty city, in my opinion. Um, So I spent maybe total about a little less than two years there I got my dream offer that I'd worked so hard to get and I just didn't want to live in LA anymore So I left I turned down the offer I left LA and I moved to the Baja in Mexico And I I lived in a little town south of Rosarito called Alacitos, And I lived there for almost three years and I just lived the dream life. I mean, I was a beach bum. Um, you know, the, the little money that I made in LA went a long way down to Mexico. And so I spent a little less than three years there um, in two separate trips. Um, but I was missing that part of challenge in my life. And I have a lot of ambitions, and I, I knew I needed to be somewhere else, but I didn't want to go back to LA. And so I reached out to some companies, and I really was, I didn't know anything about photography at this point. Not that I do now, but I truly had not much of a portfolio. And this is just pure words. And I just sent out an email to a company, Eureka, and asked them to sponsor me. And my idea was to do the entire PCH, which starts in the southern tip of the Baja. The Baja is a little 1,100-mile 1, strip uh, peninsula next to the mainland Mexico. And then take that all the way to Alaska. And I knew I wanted to live on a coast. And I would find somewhere to live out of Mexico, United States, and Alaska. So I asked them to sponsor me for that trip. Um, and just there was no framework had no idea I was just like yeah hey, I'm just gonna get in a car and drive until I find it and I'll photograph you know camping stuff and they're an outdoor company so any of the stuff that goes with it as part of the sponsorship and uh, they immediately came back and said no they said we're not gonna <laughs> we won't sponsor you and I said wait like I thought we're, but I didn't have a real or a portfolio to back it up and I kind of spent a few days and I, I'm, I'm weird with persistence and rejection, you know, it's a very inevitable part of an artist's life. And I I found like a decent relationship with it. And I decided that it actually did make sense, I thought, that what they were getting was a good enough return for sponsoring me, and so I put that into a follow-up email, and I sent it back to them, and to my absolute surprise, they came back and said, yes, we'll sponsor you. And I said, okay. So then me and my girlfriend at the time, we just got in the car, And we drove, we spent 10 months on the PCH, um, never left the PCH for six months, never once. We're on the PCH the entire time. Um, And when we're in Seattle, um, a friend of mine that we stayed with, um, he said, hey, you should go to Glacier National Park. And I said, that's a great idea, but I can't because this whole trip is sponsored to be on the PCH. And he said, I will kill you myself if you don't go to Glacier <laughs> and then see it. And then you can come back and get back to the PCH and go to Alaska. And on my way to Glacier, I stopped in Coeur d'Alene. Another funny story, but to shorten it, I stopped in Coeur d'Alene, fell in love, and I got a house there
1: the next day, and I've never left wow you don't have to shorten the funny story you can tell us that too yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah i didn't know i i i love
2: talks and uh, i'm used to people (laughs) wanting every story to be short um i went through coeur d'alene at nighttime i didn't know anything about it i'd never heard of coeur d'alene didn't know anything about idaho and me and my girlfriend went through at nighttime and so we stopped at 90 and 95 um you know the main interstate exit and it was bowling alleys and gas stations. And I was like, this town sucks. There's nothing here. And I was like, okay. And so the beautiful part of Coeur is really that drive when you're going east. And you go over the bridge and you see all Lake Coeur d'Alene. Well, we did that at night. So we didn't see any of that. And so we drove past it. We had a feeling there was something there, but we couldn't see it. And so we left Coeur didn't think anything about it. Went to Kellogg. And we camped and spent the night in Kellogg. And then the next day, um, we woke up and we're kind of going around town like we always did and tried to meet locals and talk to people. And um, I had gone to a coffee shop to get a cup of coffee and uh, they were out of drip coffee and I'm cheap and I wanted just a drip coffee. So I was like, I'm just going to walk around and see if I can find a drip coffee. And I I walked around until I found a sign that just said uh, silver cup roasting, which is friend Andy now and, and silver cup space out of uh out of Kellogg and they do union coffee and stuff like that and so I walked in and I said and the guy came out of the back he had no idea what I was doing there it's like a warehouse and I said hey can I can I get a cup of coffee and he, he's like this isn't a coffee shop you know this is a roastery and I was like well is there any way that you don't have any kind of cup of coffee or anything around it and he said I could probably find a way he's like hold on I'll, I'll look around and so he looked around found a way to to do a little pour over with what he had, and in that time of the conversation, we started talking, I told him about the trip and the project, and he said, did you see Coeur d'Alene? I said, yeah, it sucks, and he's like, what? <laughs>
1: he's like, do you
2: actually see it? And I was like, yeah, he's like, did you see Sandpoint? And I was like, no, he's like, go back, see Coeur d'Alene, <laughs> see Sandpoint, and then take Highway 2 to Glacier, so you can do the scenic route to Glacier, wow. and on our way back, went to Coeur d'Alene. and I had never even seen that side of Coeur like, you know, 3rd Street, 4th Street, downtown, And then we stayed in Sandpoint um, at Green Bay Campground, and the couple next to us uh, lived in Coeur d'Alene, and we started talking to them, and they said, come stay with us for the week. We'll show you the real Coeur d'Alene. And so we came back down, they showed the real Coeur d'Alene, you know, downtown 3rd, 4th Street, and uh, just absolutely fell in love and never left.
1: And how long ago was that? That was about four years ago. Four years uh, in August. And so you're in Coeur d'Alene, and, what, and you're a photographer. What are, What are the jobs like in Coeur d'Alene? What do you do?
2: Well, it's really amazing because, uh, again, as a, a traveler and a, an aesthetic, it just I like to just move and travel and not work very much like I think most people do. But I wanted to find a way to not be broke and poor anymore and are homeless anymore, which I've definitely done that, and find something more sustainable. So it's really nice in Coeur d'Alene because you have – weddings a lot of destination weddings but the season's very short so the season might be from may till october at the most and so you cram in all of your work for the whole year in those 5 months or so and it's brutal, it's ruthless. I always say it's like Alaskan crab fishermen that go out for 3 months and if they can survive it they make all their money for the year, you know. Just a so little f-
1: more dangerous though. Just a little.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can't put myself that close. But every year I'm like, "Come on heart, one more wedding, like we got this. One more wedding." And then you make it by the skin of your teeth, and then you got seven months off to go in. You wow. made all your money, and you had a lot of great experiences with it. So, and with um, your seven well,
1: months off, what do you do? Do you shoot then too, or are you kind of off the clock?
2: Yeah, so I, I'm a, a tortured artist in the sense that I always have to be doing something artistic or with photography or something creative. And so another thing is, I love these passion projects. I I did a passion project where I went around the world and I asked everyone for a piece of wisdom um, just to mess around and try to learn from the world. And then... uh, And then uh, this last one, you know, is another one I started out of nowhere. and uh, so. But passion projects don't make any money, at least in the short term, obviously. And that's not why you do them. You do them to stay inspired. You do them to be interested or to try something out of your comfort zone. So it really is amazing because the weddings allow me to have money to not take as much risk with a passion project, which is very hard to monetize, obviously. And so in those seven months, I'll spend a month at home with my family or around and I'll take a month off and try to relax. Um, But then the rest of that, I just pick little passion
1: projects or just choose little things and I travel. I love to travel. So what are some other of your passion projects? That sounds interesting. Well, actually, before you even get into that, uh, is there one piece of wisdom that you got from that passion project you described that has really stuck with you?
2: Yeah, and uh, and it's on the TED Talk, so we'll do it twice. But uh, the, to me, this like changed the direction of my life. I, I was just travel-bumming around the world. Um, and I would travel-bum whatever money I had. And I always worked in restaurants. I, I waited tables for eight years while I was trying to learn photography and figure out any way to make another living. And so I think that's important because a lot of people say, oh, I want to do this, but I don't have the money to do this and realize that um, if you just save as much as you can, thankfully now travel is cheaper than it's ever been. Scott's Cheap Flights, big shout out. I do them all the time. They're one of my favorites for cheap international flights. Are you a
1: subscriber or are you a free version guy? I'm not even a subscriber,
2: I'm a (laughs) free. I told you I'm cheap, remember? (laughs) (laughs) So I just wait till they send me a good deal and then go with that. And then once you're there, live frugally, stay in hostels. Airbnbs have gotten pretty cheap. Um, But yeah, but I worked in restaurants. And so I never had a lot of money going into this. I just wanted to figure this out. And so um, I but I didn't have any direction. And I always wanted to figure out a relationship, like as far as something more concrete, because my life was very fluid and unstable at the time. Not in a bad way, but just always spontaneous. And um, I was in San Quintin in the Baja, and I met this older gentleman named Alan, and him and his wife were sitting there, and they're from the UK, from England. And we just sat there and talked for hours, and um, I asked Alan, I said, and I asked him what he's been doing. He said, we've been traveling the world for 50 years. A lot of it's been spontaneous, and there's a lot of crossovers and stories that we we're telling. And so I really latched on to that, because here he is at the end of his life. He's 76 now. And he's got a lifetime of travel experience to talk to me about. And so so what he told me is he said, listen, as you're starting to live a life very similar to mine, I want to tell you the number one thing I learned after all these travels, he said, Throughout all of your travels, you're going to see beautiful places. You're going to see beautiful mountains, beautiful rivers, beautiful oceans, beautiful towns, people, all these things like that. But he said when you get to the end of your life, and he's at the end of his life now, he said the only thing you're going to remember is the people that you met along the way. And so allow yourself to really interact with people, draw close to relationships, have conversations, stay in touch, because those are the things that matter. Um, And that really stuck with me and that's one of the number one reasons I started this next project um, to always force myself to interact and be close to people. And what is the next project? That's the one that I've been on now. So Hello from a Stranger started from um, really... Me and my girlfriend spent that whole time on the trip. We moved to Coeur d'Alene, we got a house together, um, and I was like, all right, this is it, this is it. I, I found the place I wanna be in. Uh, photography's kinda working out, I'm happy, I got the girl, I got all these things, and um, and like life will do for you quite a few times things aren't in your control and life is about um how you deal with with unexpected circumstances and we kind of grew apart you know and it was crazy to me because we had spent literally 10 months in a car together and we were close we didn't we weren't fighting we weren't arguing like we loved every moment of it and to think that once we had this home maybe we had grown so accustomed to that now we have this home and it was more difficult to make a relationship stable um or maybe I was wanting it to work in the sense that um, like, I had idealized it and now it was like, all these things were there. And, and so that relationship ended up um, kind of breaking up and failing. And we tried to make it work sometimes and we just finally came to the conclusion that it wasn't gonna work. And so now my whole rug was pulled out of me and I was like, okay, well, I was trying my absolute hardest to be close to people. And now I feel like, now I'm in a town where I don't know anyone else. And the only person I did know, we just broke up, and now I'm feeling pretty empty. And so I went through, and then I went into the first winter time in North Idaho, dear God. (laughs) Not knowing that there's four months of no sunshine. Um, And so we we broke up and I was just, I went into a depression, especially in the winter time. I didn't know anyone, didn't know who to talk to, and I just felt very disconnected. And at a moment of just like I hit the wall of just being depressed for so long, feeling alone for so long, that I, I just went to my friend's house, Tevo, and I went and I was sitting in this house by myself and I just said, I need to do what I've always where I've always found a lot of joy and I need to just travel just to get out and you know, refresh my perspective. And so I looked at a map and I just picked a one-way ticket to Copenhagen, Denmark. And then my crazy idea was just to leave my comfort zone all the time, which as an introvert was to be social and talk to strangers. I'm terrified of rejection. And so it was to like confront rejection every single day by going up strangers and saying hello and just trying to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And then to ride trains through all of Europe. And, and, And I love trains. And the idea was also that when you're on trains, it seems like no one really talks to anybody other than the people that they're right next to or with. Same with airplanes, and it's understandable to a certain extent, but on trains, you're on them for 10, 12 hours across Europe, especially a lot of long, and you got restaurant carts and bar carts. And so I was just gonna see how many people I could connect with um, on trains, and then jump out of the train in random places and just try to meet people all around Europe.
1: Now, when you say connect with them, did you record them, uh, video, audio, take photographs, or just do it in your memory?
2: Yeah, so whenever there was a a story or quotation, I always recorded that to make sure that I quoted it correctly. Um, All of this was by the fly. And it's funny because this is how this kind of COVID stuff started, too, where the initial idea was just to take a trip. And take pictures to renew my inspiration and then I wanted to involve with people, but I didn't know how and then the train So I didn't know how and then so I was just winging this the whole time and picking it up So in the beginning, I was just taking a picture walking away Then I was taking a picture trying to have a conversation Then I was taking a picture having a conversation, but not recording it or capturing it and then it was take a picture Have the conversation put the story with it and it just kept evolving and still evolving with that
1: you're listening to KYRS, Medical Lake, Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour
0: receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com.
1: We got the blues on. We ain't got a
2: Hang out with me, Jukebox Jenny, on Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. to hear America's very own music, the blues. Let me help you shake the trouble out with a mix of funk, R&B, and blues from Delta to Chicago.
0: You'll hear... I'm and... I'm just a Mississippi woman I wanna get back to my blues And... Breaking my back Teasing my dreams, buddy. Don't forget to shake your rump to. It's a cocktail that will soothe the soul. Working women's Blues, Sunday nights, 6 to 8 p.m., right here on KYRS. So, Adam, one of the stories that you told in the TEDx was about that trip, that project, and you took a picture of uh, an immigrant somewhere in europe mm-hmm. and you know there was this kind of that back and forth and the immigrant didn't know whether you should take the picture but you showed it to him and you had this conversation that was kind of a powerful moment in that he felt like he was seen rather than just having a picture taken
2: yeah thanks for noticing that and really uh, watching that i appreciate that um you know as i said with technology i, I I'm very resistant to it, and I've really been someone that's been slow adopter of checking my phone all the time and things like that, because I really have noticed how much it makes people feel isolated, as much as we're connected to one another, and so, and I also feel the pull with me. It's very easy for me to be checking my phone all the time, so I try my best, um, but another reason for this project was to walk around and just say hello to people and see if people even wanted to have that conversation. So many people said... You know, people aren't going to be okay talking. Or you're going to scare the crap out of people. Or you're going to be awkward. Or what? All these things. And I was like, I'm already awkward all the time, so I don't. That doesn't bother <laughs> me. <laughs> but just to see what happened, and that was a big turning moment where um, I was bouncing around the trains, and I was in Milan, in Italy, and I came out of the train station, and there was a bunch of refugees, hundreds and hundreds of refugees, all over the train station. It was very stark because they stood out and um they were just standing around and they didn't really have anywhere to go and they didn't they were very displaced you could see and i really it, it hurt my heart i really wanted to try to connect and uh you know see what i could do to make them just see to help in any way that i could and um as i walked around and looked at um multiple people and talked to a few people when I saw that gentleman he was sitting all everyone was in little groups and he was the only guy just sitting all by himself and so when I saw the picture and I just kind of walk around until I see a picture and then I saw the picture and I walked up and I was so excited and I asked him oh my goodness I'm photographing people all over the world and um, only when I see something beautiful and I'd love to take this beautiful photograph if you don't mind and he instantly said no and Thankfully, this was about a month into the trip, and I had been so beaten down by rejection and disappointment, and I'd gotten used to it. I didn't even care. I didn't even hear the no anymore at this point. I was just like, I expect to know if I hear yes, it's great. Um, But I started to realize how much more that, like, a lot of people say no as just an instant reaction, but they don't really mean no a lot of times if they just don't, that means they don't really know what you're doing or they don't know if they can trust you. And so I just kind of, I was exhausted. And I just kind of looked at him for a long second, a long few seconds, Um, and in that little moment he had a chance to think, and he said, well, what are you going to do with the picture? And I said, oh my gosh, yeah, 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 and so I kind of showed him other pictures on my camera and told him about the idea and the project and stuff. And he was just very, very, very slowly, deliberately thinking very, very intentionally, and he finally looked at me and he said, okay, you can take my picture. And I wasn't going to give him a chance to know anyway. I was so excited. It was such a good picture in a moment. And so I ran over and I got my picture real quick. And then I ran back and I wanted to show him right away. And he gave me the exact picture that I saw. It was his smile. He looked at me a little bit shy, a little bit awkward. um, And he looked at me with just a very innocent look. That was just a great smile. So I showed it to him. when I showed it to him, he quietly just took the camera from me. And he's looking close at the screen, and I'm just standing there getting very emotional, kind of watching this beautiful moment. He was completely silent. He looked up at me and he just looked back at his picture and he looked up at me again and we had tears in our eyes and he just said, no one's ever asked to take my photograph before. And here we are in a moment where so many people feel alone, so many people feel isolated. And suicide rates are the highest they've ever been. And we're walking around just thinking about ourselves, thinking about what we're doing, thinking about our own problems. And I'm guilty of that too, of course, but it takes so little just to show someone that we see them. And that's where I found all the success in this project is now just to walk up and say hello. Maybe they'll think it's awkward, maybe they'll think it's strange, but I've, I've, I'm at almost a 0% rejection right now where People trust the vulnerability, and people are craving the human connection, even if they don't understand it. They trust it because they can see you're putting yourself out there, and they meet you in the middle. So it's really nice.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, really a key point. I think, well, one thing is that I think we're all hardwired for stories, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that's very engaging. Um, That's what really attracted me about your story with this project is when you finally made that connection about human connection. And so, uh, how does that relate with this project you're doing now with the COVID thing? I saw a few photographs of that. Um, Are you getting the, what vibe are you getting with your project now?
2: Yeah, that, you know, there's a lot, it's funny, there's a lot of crossovers with this and I did not realize it at all. Again, um, I had the rug pulled out from under me, like most people did, I'd given my entire life to this Hello from a Stranger project, which is dedicated to going around the world, getting close to strangers, having close conversation. It was like, well, I can't do that for who knows how long, obviously. And we were supposed to be in New York City filming. Right now, we're going to, now it's like the fall. We don't even know if we can to do that. So I did the normal, like, no, this is great. This is, this is wonderful. And the shock and denial and... This will pass, and then when I I was just sitting there, and um, again I'm almost like a, a bit of a caged animal when I'm not creating or doing something. I, I think too much and I worry too much, and my flow is in just out of my comfort zone in creating. And so after a few weeks of that, I was like, well, I don't care what I do, I just can't sit in this house or or anything. And as a journalist, I felt a compelling reason to go out and capture a very clear moment in history. Um, A very strange, you know, and and I I understood that there was going to be a lot of backlash amongst it, and and I I am not used to that. I'm used to my projects being very lighthearted and optimistic and having minimal, maybe that's a part of why I do them, but having minimal backlash as far as, like, it's hard. Um, And so with this, I, I went to Seattle, to the App Center, Mask, gloves every single protective measurement physically possible quarantine in the car at all times and uh got the pictures came back and there's a a lot of press with them but there's a lot of backlash again and that was okay but i was not used to that amount of criticism and so i cared about that for like two minutes and then i was like well art is going to always have a lot of division you know love it or hate it and And that's okay. So I decided that I wanted to see bigger places, more important places, um, and that I I consulted with a a nurse in charge of COVID um, who consulted me on all the different practices that I could do to be as 100 safe, or 99.9% safe as possible, and then wore a mask at all times, wore gloves at all times. But really it started out like, I'm just gonna go capture these iconic moments to then starting to integrate with people a little bit more um, and just letting it build from there.
1: So where you said you've re, you got a backlash. Mm-hmm. Uh, where had you published those that people were responding to them?
2: Um, so there's minimal, you know, in the beginning, it was just a, a few Facebook things. And then there's lots of people that said, you're not staying home. You're you're being a a, a hypocrite. You're telling other people to. Stay home, but you're not. And then you went over to the epicenter and you came back to Coeur d'Alene. And Coeur d'Alene has this little private paradise part yeah, mentality, and that's okay. I'm part of that. Um, but it was like um, so people just saw you went to the epicenter and then you came back to Coeur d'Alene. And, they don't think, you know, that I'm self-isolating all the time. Or they might say, oh, I saw you on the sidewalk. And so it's like, how safe are you being? Are you just another person that's adding to this? And so the press, the Corlean press did a piece on this. Um, the Inlander did a piece, um, KXLY did a piece on it, and there was—I would say—it was less than I thought. Maybe twenty percent backlash, um, but it was kind of significant on the twenty percent. People were pretty angry about it. As far as you're going to bring this into Coeur d'Alene and you're going to bring this into our little private paradise here.
0: So, what, um, after doing that or in that process, you know, we here all of us are kind of at home, and we just get our outside world through through media, like everybody else, but actually being a person taking a picture and being right there um, did it affect you at all uh, in an emotional way going through that?
2: Mm, that 's a great question i um, so there 's two parts of that i'm very i 'm a very emotional person and i 'm very uh, like an aesthetic like i really immerse myself in in situations and I try to be very present to get these pictures and stuff. So I'm very, like, aware of the places that I'm in. I try to pay attention to people and what's around me. But the other part is when I'm kind of in my flow, which is, you know, really exploring spontaneously, looking for these pictures, looking for situations, I'm also kind of in a flow. And I'm kind of, you know, noticing and aware of these things, but not as much letting them emotionally um, hit me in a way that like stops me in my tracks and, and so that was the initial part of that and that's kind of how I am with taking pictures but then when I involve it with people that's when the emotional side really comes back to me and I'm much more present with these conversations because you have more of a an instant um, reply on how someone else is doing and I genuinely care and and um, you know again this is so interesting to me because again I have a mask up to my eyes I have gloves, I have purple gloves through most of this, but I, I kept changing all these purple gloves, and so I look ridiculous. And um, and so now I still have to use this as a mode of some form of connection, um, and if it was even possible. And standing 10 feet apart from people, can you connect with people in that way? And I found so much more than even before, people dying for that human connection again, which we, were, we knew was out there, but... Um, when people saw that you're wearing a mask and gloves and everything and doing the right things um, to be safe, they were very happy and, and opened up to me very quickly because they saw that um, it was as safe as we could physically make it.
1: So, so yeah. he asked about the emotional impact. I mean, what sort of takeaways did you have from being in the epicenter? I mean, what? and I'm not saying, you know, what did you see that the mainstream media wasn't feeding us or whatever else, but, yeah. but being in there, what were some of the insights that you got from there?
2: I think, you know, the, the emotional side to me and, and the insight to me, especially in the epicenter, especially in Seattle. But, um, you know, I've been in I'm in Bend right now. I've been in Vegas and L.A. this week and a lot in Salt Lake and stuff. But um, in the epicenter, it was completely silent, complete. This is probably two and a half weeks ago, completely devoid of all life except for homelessness. And to me, that really stuck out to me. I've done some projects with with homeless and they're part of the invisible fabric of our society, unfortunately, and so many of them feel like that. And so here you are in Pike's Place, complete empty streets, empty everything, at 5.30 on a Saturday night, has never happened and will never happen again in a lifetime, completely silent. And the only scuffling you would hear is homeless. And what I saw was a lot of them banding together because, you know, We think, um, you know, the quarantine's the worst and we got to be at home or we got to watch Netflix, stuff like that. And there's a huge population of people that don't have a home and that even thrive on tourism um, and and need that tourism to survive as good or bad as that is either way. Um, And so right now, the homeless are just completely left out in the cold. And so in Seattle, I saw all of them banding together, sharing food when they were able to. Um, And then there's this one lady who was helping this older gentleman. They were both clearly homeless. And the older gentleman kept saying, let me go. Just, I'm fine. Just leave me here. And she just kept saying, I'm not leaving you. I'm going to be with you until we get you to somewhere warm and safe and dry where you need to be. And I watched her walk this guy all the way across the the whole market and everything and then get him to a safe place. So there's a different kind of bond.
1: Oh, that's cool uh, and it's funny right before the, the uh, shutdown I checked out a book from the library called A Paradise Made in Hell I believe is what it's called by Rebecca Ooh. Solnit and White the title. point of the book was that in these really difficult times there are these small communities that band together and it really is about how these worst of times often will bring out the best <clears throat> of people and the communities and all mm-hmm. that so uh, I mean that fits right in with what you're talking about there mm-hmm. yeah it's an interesting idea that's cool so well, it's really. Oh, I
2: was going to say it's really refreshing and people need to do that maybe to renew faith in humanity is to go out and see what people do when they have no comforts at all the people I, that help others and give what they can during those times that is a true sign of character There's no. it's the people that have a lot that don't share with others that's the sign of character also so when you see homeless doing that that have so little but they give what they can to give a little comfort it's very refreshing in the grand perspective of humanity right now
1: I'm sure people listening would think, where can they see these photos that you're talking about?
2: They're all on uh, on the website. So it's on hellofromastranger.com. And then that'll open up now. The main page is the Quarantine Diaries, which is this whole project. I haven't even gotten started barely on LAX on Las Vegas and LA and Salt Lake, which are the most iconic. I've been on this trip for about a little over a week. And then we'll be coming back self-isolating, and then we'll be getting those pictures up. And I had once-in-a-lifetime experiences every hour, every day, unbelievable. Yesterday, I went through, or two days ago, I went through San Francisco, and I, was, I wasn't even going to go to SFO, the airport, and I was passing, and I was like, I should just try it, like, go see what it's like, and because I, I had already done LAX, and LAX is uh, LA airport, and completely empty, and that was so strange. And so I went to SFO. And I turned around on the highway and I went back. And by the way, there's no rules right now. It's really amazing. You you can kind of do whatever you want right now. You can take U-turns and and you can, uh, you kind (laughs) of got the whole world to yourself, which is very, very fun. But um, I went back to the airport and then I went through the arrivals. And then there was like, I think three cars in all of the arrivals. And now this is San Francisco, like a very um, smashed together, always busy gridlock traffic city. Um, and so completely empty. And then I stopped and I talked to a police officer that was a security guard. And I asked to get his picture and we started talking. And so all these police kept pulling up. And he told them, no, he's fine. He's with me. Yeah, he's good. And I just parked in the middle of the street, like blocking the arrival. So no one even cares. And then I went to the departures after. And I had all of the, the entire, I swear to God, to myself. And I parked illegally on a red zone in front of the departures at San Francisco Airport, where you probably couldn't sit for three seconds on a normal day. I stayed there for 45 minutes and never even had a single person say a word to me or talk to me. I walked through the airport. I had the entire airport to myself. I swear, there's not one person working. There's not one gate clerk, not one gate check, no security, no anything. I walked through and just took all these pictures and moments, and then... Um, I met a nurse that was sitting outside, and she's the main RN nurse in charge of the COVID, um, in charge of screening all passengers that come through the airport. So we had a great conversation a moment with it, but um, once in a lifetime, unbelievable.
1: You're invited to cruise Americana Avenue with me, Jim Tate, in your car or at the office. Each Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m., you'll hear the best and progressive American Roots music in a multitude of styles. It's Americana Avenue on your radio station, KYRS. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just three dollars a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting "Give KYRS" to four four three two one. That's all one word: "Give KYRS" to four four three two one. So you're in Bend now. Uh, I wouldn't imagine Bend is a big hot spot. Why, what are you doing in Bend?
2: Uh, I just took too much time driving back. And <laughs> <laughs> was, I had another interview at 730 this morning because it was 930 in St. Louis when the interview was. And uh, I'm a horrible morning person. And so I was like, rather than drive back and get to Coeur at midnight last night and have to be up at 630 this morning, I just thought I'd stop somewhere. And it's quarantine. So I'm in no rush. So but, you're
1: back home uh, tomorrow. And then where are you going?
2: I'm back home, I'll probably be back tonight, and then uh, I have a girlfriend, and, you know, I'll, I'll be there and, and kind of, you know, building, uh, just trying to catch up with all the things that are going right now, and I'll probably be there for a while. So, I always say that, then I sit there for two weeks, and I'm freaking out, and I have to go somewhere <laughs> else. So, my plan is now to try to sit still for a little bit.
1: Now, you mentioned on this whole trip, well, first of all, you mentioned you went to Salt Lake City. That seems like an odd choice. I mean, LAX makes sense and Las Vegas and SFO makes sense. So, uh, one of the questions that I have for you is how did you choose the places? And then the next question I have for you, and you kind of already answered that, but I'm just curious if you have any others. What were some big surprises that popped out to you as you were on this trip?
2: Yeah. And I, I really picked the places only logistically. Again, like for whatever reason, about three weeks ago, Las Vegas just popped into my head, and I couldn't stop thinking about Las Vegas. I was like, when else where there'll be empty casinos, empty sidewalks, empty streets? Casinos don't care. like They wouldn't close for anything at all unless they're forced to. So I was like, this is very, very, very iconic, and I feel like no one else is doing it. Everyone's going to New York City or LA. And so I wanted to do Las Vegas, um, and then... I so I kinda of planned the trip through doing that. And I saw that if going from Corland to Las Vegas, you go through Salt Lake. And so then this is kinda of how my brain works. I was like, well, oh my God, could you imagine a picture of a Mormon pastor or member of the church in a full Mormon suit, tie, wearing a mask in the front of the church? And I was like, Well, that's an impossible picture. You have to be baptized and you have to be a member of the church. And I was like, and again, I, I just love challenge and I hate rules. So I was like, there's got to be a way. This is a fun, really funny story because this is probably the most difficult picture I've ever gotten. I would say one of the top three. But, so I went to Salt Lake with this idea. That was it. That was the only thoughts that I had had. And so I stopped at two temples on the way down. I think they're temples or churches. I'm not sure. I think they're ch-
1: tabernacles.
2: Well, there's a tabernacle and then there's a church. I oh, think.
1: okay. Well, either way, yeah. But, I, I should know this.
2: <laughs> I won't hold it again I don't know But uh, So I went to two different ones on the way down Kind of off the beaten path Thinking that if you go to a, one in a smaller town I might have a better chance of getting in And I knew this but I forgot How much they're built like fortresses I mean there's gates And theres I'm surprised there's not like a moat With alligators going around it And <laughs> It's like you can't get in it Unless you're, you're baptized And so I struck out both times And then I went to Salt Lake City, and and I said, okay, well, there's a lot here, Mormon-related, obviously. So I went to Temple Square... Um, and what I always do is I just walk around spontaneously, and I just kind of look for people or a little inn. And I walk through the the main temple square. Didn't know anything about it, any of the buildings. And I am all masked up, gloved up, and everything. And I am checking some doors, and one of the doors opens. I was like, no way! All right, so I walk in the door, and I got my camera. Obviously, I got my sk- I always have a skateboard on me because I kind of skate to move faster through these towns. Um, And I walk in, there's security right there. And I'm looking around the lobby. And I was like, this is perfect. It's not a church, but it's perfect. There's statues and everything. And security guard said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm here to take a picture of a member of the church wearing a mask and a tie and all this stuff. And the lobby is perfect. I can do it right here. And he said, well, I can't give you authorization to do that. And I said, well, how do I get authorization? He said, well, you got to speak with public relations and get authorization from them and bring it to me. And I said, well, I'm only here for today. And I'm so sorry I didn't plan this out better, but I I have to do this today. And he's kind of thinking, and I was surprised how nice he was to me. And he said, "Okay, listen, there's a building over here. There's two awnings. Go in the second entrance, and then go in that building. And there's a bank of elevators. And take the elevators up to the second floor, and that's public relations. Ask them, get a letter from them, bring it back to me, and I'll let you take pictures in this building. And I said, okay. And so I went out to this building, went to the second entrance, I opened the door, door opened, walked right inside, and I immediately had this feeling like I am not supposed to be in this building. There is no way. There were statues, it was silent, it was like decadent, gorgeous. Um, And it was definitely like just I don't know, it was very stagnant and strange And so I immediately, so I obviously liked that, I was like well this is great pictures I don't think I'm supposed to be here And so um, there's one gentleman In the lobby And he's wearing a suit He's the only life at all in this building He's wearing a suit and he's speaking in Spanish on his phone And so I'm listening to him speaking Spanish, and I don't hear that accent very often in Coeur d'Alene, and so it's like, great. And so I take some pictures, and then I get on the elevator to go to the second floor, and he comes on the elevator with me. And he's still speaking Spanish, and we both go to the second floor, and we get out at the same time, and he hangs up his phone, and he says, sir, are you supposed to be in this building? And I said, yeah, yeah, the security guy over here told me to come over here and come in and talk to public relations. And we both just looked, and he looked at this bank of desks all out on the second floor, and they're all empty, lifeless. And he said, sir, this is public relations. So, as you can see, there's no one here. and This is all remote. And he just looked at me like he didn't buy my story, but I, had, yeah, I would like that I had the backstory. And he said, sir, you're not allowed to be in this building. You can't be in this building. You have to leave the building. And I said, okay. But I said, real quick. Uh, that Spanish accent's amazing. Where, that's got to be South America. He said, Yeah, Venezuela. And so we started, I'd, I'd been to Venezuela before, and we started talking about that. We talked for 15 minutes. And then he like snapped back into it, and he's like, Whoa, whoa, whoa oh, sir, you're, you can't be in this building. You have to leave the <laughs> building. And so I said, Okay, so I'll leave. Thank you. Have a nice day. And he didn't walk me out. And so I go back down the elevator, and I'm back in the lobby all to myself. And God, I, I try my hardest to not break rules that ever affect anybody. I don't like to make anyone's day worse. I like to be silent and kind of do little things. But it's a line, you know, and getting pictures that are iconic or once in a lifetime. And it's hard to do if you follow all the rules. And so I'm in the lobby again by myself. And I'm thinking, okay, I'll get a few more pictures. And then I'll leave. Well, the elevator chime goes off. And I know that someone's about to come out of the elevator. And so just instinctually, I run and I hide in the stairwell right there. So I'm hiding in this stairwell. And I'm like, I feel like I'm in a James Bond movie or something stupid. I'm like, OK, but I'm in this like white marble. Like, it's such a really interesting moment. And so the people walk by. They don't see me or think anything of it. And then, of course, me, I'm like, wait. There's a basement to this building. What could be in the basement of this incredibly strange building? And so I walk down the stairs into the basement. And I'm in the basement. And there's a room and these gold signs and everything. And again, don't want to be disrespectful. I want to do the right thing. And I'm just kind of looking around. And I'm like, I'll just look around and I'll leave. Well, I spent like five minutes. I maybe took one picture. There wasn't anything that interesting. And I'm like, I'll go in the bathroom and go to the bathroom and I'll leave. So I go in the bathroom in the basement. And I come out, and there's a guy in a suit with a mic with an earpiece, and he says, sir, what are you doing in the basement of this building? <laughs> and I was like, here we go. Dude. <laughs> there's no way I'm not getting arrested here in this situation, especially if a church especially like in the basement of this building and i said oh the security guard over here told me to come over here and get to the second floor and he said the second floor you're in the basement and i said yeah i got a little lost and i'm just trying to figure it out and and the whole time he's in his earpiece and he's talking he's going uh he keeps saying numbers like 800 234 (laughs) With subject in the basement. And he's in a full suit and everything. And so it's like blah, blah, blah. Um, And so I'm just trying to charm him just to leave. I just don't. And I assume they're going to call the police. I'm probably in bad shape. But I'm charming him a little bit. He keeps talking to his earpiece. And he's like talking to the subject. And then he's coming back. And he finally says, I'll take you to the second floor. I'm like, okay, I got to run with this. And so we get in the elevator, we go to the second floor, and all I can think is, dear God, I hope that guy in the black suit's not there, because he's going to be like, I just told this guy to leave the building. What's he doing in the basement? And so I'm just playing dumb the whole time, obviously. We get to the second floor, the door's open, and Scurdy goes, well, this is public relations, and... As you can see, there's no one here, and and everything's remote. And I said, don't worry about it. Just wanted to try. I'll send you guys an email, and we'll touch there. And he said, no, no, no. He goes, sit in this chair real quick. Hold on. And so remember, mask, purple gloves, holding a skateboard in a t-shirt also in this building. And I sit in the chair and I'm sitting there and I have my headphones in, or not in, but on my shirt. And so um, he goes into this, there's like two glass doors and it's a key card entry. And so I sit in the chair, he goes in a key card entry and he disappears around the corner. I have no idea what's gonna happen. And maybe like 30 seconds at the most later he comes out with another guy. And the other guy is dressed in the Mormon tie, everything like that, and the guy's very charismatic. Really nice guy, and he goes, my name's David, he gives me a card, and he's like, I'm the director of media relations for the church. He's like, what can I do for you? And I said, oh, I'm just trying to, you know, this is the project. I'm photographing COVID-19 uh, moments, iconic moments around the country. And I had this idea of just getting a person in, in, in the church in a mask. And he goes, well, I can't give you authorization to shoot inside of a church. And, and I said, it's okay. That lobby is perfect over there. I'll take the pictures. He goes, I can't give you authorization to shoot in that building. And so I was like, it's okay. We'll do it right here. This hallway is perfect. There's a painting at the end. This is a great shot. We'll do it right here. And he goes, well, you can't take my picture. And I was like, well, what do you want me to do? I, I, don't, I can't take a picture, I can't shoot anywhere. I was like, so I don't even know what to ask you for. And we're both kind of looking and the guy again is real charismatic and he's like really thinking and he goes, come with me. And so we go back to the elevators. I have no idea where it's going. And uh, we go all the way to the top floor of this building that I'm in. Again, I have no idea. Door opens, opens into this floor and it is all glass overlooking, you walk up to the glass and it's overlooking the entire Mormon compound. So you got the tabernacle, the church. They just built the largest religious auditorium in the world. It's 21,500 seats. And so we're looking, overlooking. And I just sit there and I'm just like, there's probably no chance. That any non-Mormon maybe has ever stepped on this floor or seen this site in a lifetime, and as an artist, I just live for that. Then, can I have my skateboard and a T-shirt? I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and so we walk up to the window, and I was like, David, oh my dear God, this is absolutely perfect. Yes, this is a perfect spot, perfect picture. I was like, you would stand right here, and I'd get this picture with all this behind you. And he goes, you can't take my picture. And I was like, well, what do you want me to do? I don't know what to do. Like, you're the only person here, and like, how else? I don't just take pictures; it's just a, a setting. He goes, well, I'll take your picture. I was like, I don't, I don't really care about my picture, but okay, we'll take it just to capture the moment, the memory. And so I show him how to take the, use a camera and take the picture and everything and set. And so he takes my picture, and then he's like looking at it on the back, and he shows me, and I'm like, great, great, great. And his wheels are turning again, and he goes, "Is there a way that you could take the picture where it doesn't show my face and it kind of like keeps me anonymous on how I look?" And I said, "Absolutely. You could stand right here. I'll expose for the background, and so you'll be a silhouette. You'll be all blacked out in it. You look out that direction, no face or anything." He's like, "Okay." So he stands there. I get the picture. All the Mormon compound, like around him, he's standing in all the glass and I take the picture and he comes back to me really really quickly I show him and he's like I'm okay with that picture and I was like perfect and so i got the picture and he's like is there anything else i can do and i was like to be honest this is all centered around people and you're probably the only person in this building and so that's perfect for me and he said okay and so i said i'll show my way out and we rode the the elevator back to the second floor together and then i actually showed my way out this time and
1: actually left, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story a lot of interesting moments so is that photograph on okay. your website
2: Not yet. I'll put it up uh, this weekend, for sure.
1: Oh, right on. Yeah, I gotta see that photo, for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome.
2: You know, this project, I don't know what it is, but uh, I've learned, you know, this is two plus years of uh, really a sociological experiment of just how to really interact with people and communicate and be vulnerable and trust. And you see it in situations like this, where if you're just vulnerable and just ask, authentically people give you a lot more credence than you might expect again in a skateboard and a t-shirt but he kind of feels my passion i think and wants to give me a chance
1: yeah an wow, honest amazing. curiosity that's cool mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. well thanks so much for talking to us this was a blast this was so much fun <laughs> The hour like that yeah.
0: i never get the chance Adam, to talk amazing. that much so. yeah, <laughs> thank
1: thanks you so much
2: mike thanks so much <laughs> i appreciate the time guys
1: yeah yeah